Let her rip, tater chip. Let her rip, tater chip. All right, we're back with our, is this our fifth installment of the Seek One podcast? I believe it is. Uh, you guys are tearing it up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you what's guys with, are tearing it up. What's up with the five-star reviews on Spotify? I don't know. Uh, I didn't even I didn't even know there was a rating system until one of our buddies reached out and was like, what are you, are you guys like paying your listeners to go, <laughs> go do a five-star review on Spotify? Yeah. Our, uh, so Bo got mad at me bringing him up in the last podcast. I think it's honorable that I bring him up again. Yeah. It was him. He has a podcast and, you know, we've kind of just been putting on Spotify right now and he's, he called me and was like, hey, have you been telling people to leave you five-star reviews because y'all's is like astronomically high? For four podcasts. <laughs> yeah. It's like 215 five-star reviews yeah. or something. I was like, I didn't even know you could write a podcast. So <laughs> <clears throat> you guys are ripping it up. So we're going to keep it rolling for you. Yeah, so now's a good chance to say, if you haven't already given us a five-star <laughs> review, us a five please star. go do that because apparently <laughs> it makes us look gotta, like we have a decent podcast. We got to bump those numbers up, guys. Those are rookie numbers. <laughs> um, so we are sitting in the dark, pretty much sitting in the dark. I might be exaggerating slightly, but we had some weird... <laughs> We're still trying to figure out this podcast thing. It's it's new to us. Uh, we're probably going to involve some video footage to go with our podcast here before too long. Hopefully, have like a actual setup, a little studio action. But we were setting up the microphones and all this stuff, and we were getting crazy feedback. And we we're like, "Is it the TV? Is it our phones? Like, what is it?" And we turned off all of the lights, and it fixed the feedback. So <laughs> we're sitting here with. Uh, one light on. It's it's romantic. It is. <clears throat> the ambiance is right. So today, I think that we're going to touch on a few things. Uh, we just got back from Alabama turkey hunting. We'll get into that. Um, we just got back. The trip before that was fishing this place in Georgia where they are literally trying to grow the next world record bass. And we're going to dial Steve. Um who is a part of that process and just kind of bring some, some cool information, ask him some questions and uh, kind of unpack some stuff from there. I also have an update for you that I haven't told you about. Oh boy. <clears throat> it's a good update. Uh, and it's kind of piggybacking on uh, the efforts that I've made in Michigan. So you got a picture of a giant. I have pictures of that specific mega giant. And I'm seeing him pretty regular. Really? Yeah. I've got a bunch of cameras and a bunch of spots, but I'm only seeing him in one particular area. And I, I say I'm seeing him a lot. I'm seeing him maybe once a week. But well, that's for, a, for no for no feed. No feed. No attractants. Nothing. Camera it's, just on a trail. Yep. That's once a week is very solid. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's literally just like I set it on a trail and I wanted it to try and catch as much as I could. Um, and he's in there. And the reason I know it's him, he doesn't have his rack. He's dropped. I know it's him because he was shot by another hunter last year in no man's land. And he's got a distinct scar in his no man's land area on his left side. And he's got the same scar. No man's land being like backstrap or below backstrap, but like above lungs, high and forward. Oh, okay. Um, so it's definitely him. And so for those of y'all who have not 
listened to our past podcasts, this deer is a ten pointer, right? Is it? He's mainframe ten pointer. Yeah. Or I guess a slick ten pointer. Pr- he's a straight pretty, ten. Straight ten pointer. Yeah. If you saw a picture of this deer, and I and someone told you uh, this is a free range deer, you'd probably call BS. You'd think that it was a high fence deer. Probably because it is stupid big. I think that he's. I think he's for sure over two hundred as just a ten pointer. That's nuts. Um, I think that he is potent. Golly, I don't want to say too much. I so I actually was talking to a couple um, Taylor Coleman about this, and I was telling him about this specific deer, and he's like, "Dude, you've got to bring people along for the ride." Mm-hmm. He's like, especially if it's just like a super unique deer. He's like, you got to keep people along for the ride. And I think I'm going to, I think we should do it in the podcast. Like, I don't know. How wanna... about this? What if you start posting pictures of his antler growth? Don't post a picture from last year. Just start posting pictures of his antler growth throughout the summer. And then we'll just like cut it off around July sometime. I'd, I'd probably be down for that. And just leave people hanging on what he turns into after July. I I think I'd be down for that. Just at some point, cut it off. Yeah. Yeah, I think I could be down for that. But I think I'll keep talking about it in the podcast as stuff develops because I'm hoping that I'm not going back up there until July, August. So I'm hoping that where the cameras are, like, I'll He's still there. Yeah, continue to see him on occasion throughout the summer. Yeah. Um, I also, did I tell you I had the police call on me when I was up there last time? Uh, I don't know. You've, th- we've had that conversation so many times of you having the police call on you. I just kind of forget. <laughs> I had three uh, three cop cars pull up on me. Uh, Didn't you of- have an AR-15 pulled on you here in Atlanta? Yeah. One time, in Kennesaw? Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> I was door knocking and it it backed up to a park and like some of these park rangers, they don't, they don't play. And I was just knocking on a door. I mean, the normal stuff, went in the backyard, put a camera out. I don't. I think a neighbor saw me, and yeah, I had dudes, park rangers, roll up on me with like the AR-15s drawn. When you say drawn, they were like they're not like pointing finger them on the at trigger, me, but like <laughs> they were walking in the woods towards me, AR-15 front and center. You know, obviously hand like on the grip and stuff. Uh-huh. But then, I mean, they didn't say like, you know, put your dick in the dirt, like. I don't know. We might have to bleep that out. (laughs) (laughs) Like, hit the dirt. Get out. They didn't say anything like that. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, three cops uh, were called on me, knocking for that deer. So, now if uh, we kill that deer, we can say, you know, giant Michigan deer, cops called. Yeah. Get some good clicks. I'm going to just start calling the cops every time you go door knocking so we can (laughs) throw that in the title. (laughs) Add to the clickbaitness. Well, why don't let's go ahead and set the stage for the Alabama or not Alabama, the Georgia fishing trip that we went on. Yeah, and then give Steve a ring. Okay, but this place, and I don't know how much we want to give away about the person that owns this place. Maybe none whatsoever, because I think he's. I think that he would probably want to stay under the radar for that. Yeah. Um, let's just I'm, say he's trying to grow the world record and. Money is not an object when it comes to growing the world record. Yeah, this and, is uh, a f- just. It's just a. I think. I think it's an exciting project for him. Um, and yeah, he's um, 
money's not an issue. Yeah. And from guy. what I've heard about him, we have not met him personally. We've, we've been on his, a couple of his properties, but it sounds like he is a true outdoorsman. Like every, every moment that he's not at work, he's hunting, fishing, managing his properties and just and absolutely he has some it. absolute insane properties. The place, this place in Georgia, I mean, when you talk about like quintessential South Georgia quail plantation property, this, this place is like postcard. Just, I don't, pines that look like they've never been cut before. Like very, very mature plantation pine, massive live oaks kind of sprinkled throughout them. Just waist high native grass everywhere. I mean, it was beautiful. It was insane. And, uh. A lot of rich history down there. That place we stayed is 100% haunted. <laughs> it always goes to this. Uh, it seems to be a common theme, I guess. But We, we just need to have a, a podcast. Well, we're going to do a podcast from, from the Rock <laughs> I want to start a Ghost Hunters <laughs> podcast or Ghost Hunters YouTube channel. Uh, <clears throat> the guys that were, they were working down there, um, I think they were doing some duck stuff. Super nice guys. Enjoyed meeting them. And quickly transitioned from you know the first five minutes of conversation with them they brought this story up and they were like you know uh they were like yeah last night you know it's like two in the morning and there's no like upstairs above us but a door slammed above us and my ceiling fan was on low and it surged to like warp speed for 15 20 seconds and then finally like slowed back down to normal speed (laughs) and he was like i don't know if this place is haunted or if we're just bringing it from the last place that we stayed at that was definitely haunted but he was like the last place we stayed at there was a little fan on his side table and he said at you know at late at night he's asleep somewhat like the the fan gets knocked off the table and like smashed up against the wall that was the last place they had said it before before that oh i didn't realize that i thought it was just like another incident he had had in the past so two fan incidences. Two fan incidences. That's weird. They could totally be messing with us, but I'm buying into it. <laughs> um, anyways, getting back on track. Well, the place that we stayed at was, it was the guest house. It, it was like a plantation house. Probably, I don't know how old it was, but probably the the, the main part of the house was probably 1800s. Yeah, for sure. Um, or, or, or older. Yeah. I mean, it's like really, really old. So not not my vibe. <laughs> Not a big ghost guy, as a lot of you probably know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's just like this guy's, he is attempting uh, and making his best effort to grow the next world record bass. So they've got this, basically a facility, and they're basically pairing up the best genetics they can possibly find. And then they have a, basically what they call kind of a research pond. I think it's 80 acres and we, we got to fish it and dude, it was unbelievable how that place was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Uh, we almost caught, I think we, we caught over 40 pounds for our best five. I lost a fish. that was for sure over 10. I caught one that was over 10. You caught several sevens, eights and seven issues to eights. And I know you lost another big one. Mm -hmm. Um, and their goal, and those those fish are not that old. I think they've only been doing it for their handful of years. But their goal is to literally grow the next world record bass in this 80-acre lake. 
and that 80-acre lake is if a fisherman could draw up the perfect oh. lake. It'll make you this go from 6 it. to midnight. <laughs> ain't, ain't no doubt about that. I mean, you're talking like before the lake was even filled with water, they had they took a a uh, a backhoe or a bulldozer and just cut shelves and stuff into the the bottom contour. They have like dedicated spawning areas, little cove areas where bait fish can go spawn. The the bass don't spawn in there because it's a female only lake. And we can I kind of want Steve to kind of go into why it's a female only lake. Um but they have what aerators, big gigantic live oak trees that they've dropped in there for yeah, cover. They, they even have piles, concrete. sensors that I think are are constantly testing water quality and giving them information on water quality. Really? Yeah. Um, they had several sensors like around the lake and they had little solar panels on like logs and stuff. Hmm. And I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was doing. We, I guess we can ask Steve. So yeah. I don't think we keep him waiting any longer. I know he's sitting around waiting for our phone call. Um, so I think we dial him up and kind of dig into it. It's, it's interesting stuff. I want to talk to him and then I genuinely want to get your two cents and my two cents as well on whether or not we think that they can actually do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to catch it, so I definitely think they can. I'm going to catch it in June <laughs> with the subscriber. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and uh, announce that while I call Steve. Yeah, we're uh, we're actually do we. Here's the thing: like we get real, we have been super blessed with really cool opportunities to go to places, and like we want to do our best to try and include you guys in on that kind of stuff whenever we can. So it's it's part to just. We like we want to show our appreciation to all of y'all, um, and so we're we're looking for opportunities just to hunt with you guys, fish with you guys, just meet y'all like however we can. Um, so we're actually choosing from those two videos we did on our YouTube from this place. Uh, we're choosing random comments in both of those videos, and then and then choosing a couple subscribers to go go fish with us in June out there, and hopefully bust some of y'all's PBs. <laughs> Hey, man. Mr. Steve. What's up? How we doing? Man, I'm giving it all I got. <laughs> you shredding the gnar out there in Montana? Say again? Are you shredding the gnar out there in Montana? <laughs> Dude, I'm pushing 40. I don't know if shredding <laughs> is any anything in my realm of vocabulary. <laughs> um, my kids basically embarrass me today but yes i'm out in montana shredding it up on the slopes man very nice very nice long way from south georgia (laughs) yes long way of course if i had you know if i had the uh if i had the uh uh the courage i would just pick up and move out here i love it out here man it's amazing i'm right there with you get it get a guest house and i'll uh you see you see a couple hundred deer a day Every day, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. So I well, love it. I love it out here, Steve. Uh, you are officially the first person to call into our podcast. So, boom! <laughs> I don't awesome. know if that's an honor or not, but well, sorry, you're I the guy be there in person. But uh, there was nothing stopping me from making this trip. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Drew and I just kind of talked for a couple minutes about the lake and kind of what y'all are trying to accomplish out there. Um, 
and we wanted to get more of your expert opinion on uh, just what what y'all have going on, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and kind of what y'all are doing to essentially attempt to break the world record largemouth bass. So yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I think I think one thing that's important to address out of the gate is you guys are not like genetically altering fish. That, that no. this is natural. You're just basically trying to pair up the best genetics you can find. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. No genetic modification at all. We're just, you know, we're probably the only private fish hatchery who's ever taken the time, effort, resources to go in and look at the genetic profile of a fish. And so... And, and I guess to simplify that is so, so often and, and really for the entirety of time in the bass industry, the sport fish bass industry. Now, other industries have done this, the tilapia, the salmon, the catfish. Well, for the first time, we've gone in and say, look, it's not just, man, those two big fish, let's breed those two because they're going to produce offspring, which is true, but there's variables there where we've just gone in and started looking at the DNA profile of fish. And we've had a handful of things we're trying to achieve through the DNA profile, Uh, just like you and me, just like some of us are big and tall. Some of us are slow. Some of us are fast and some fish, you know, aren't very good performers. Some fish are. So we've just, are you, tried to see why genetically. Are you kind of looking for like the Shaquille O'Neal's? <laughs> um, and maybe, uh, yeah. Other than you know, you know, I, I, Shaquille O'Neal's not very fast. We we want fast Shaquille O'Neal's, but yes. So maybe like a Usain Bolt. <clears throat> but even even with like, again, this is this is what we try to get people to see is even with Sha- Shaquille O'Neal is you look at Shaquille O'Neal and you're like, man, he's big. He's awesome. He was a great basketball star. But that doesn't mean his his children are going to be that because there may be, especially you know, looking at who he married, who he had children with, and what was the DNA profile of his wife, what recessive genes are in him. And we're just trying to eliminate any variables that could not – allow us to do what we're trying to do and do it repeatedly, right? Because, again, our goal is not necessarily to grow the next world record. It's actually, it's actually to do it over and over and over again. And if and if not do that over and over again, be able to, pro- to help people produce bigger fish, more of them. I mean, I, I, a lot of times I say, you know, my number one goal is, for me personally, is, as you guys know, I mean, uh, for a lot of people, catching a double-digit fish is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We want to eliminate that. Like, we want to eliminate the idea that I may or may not ever catch a 10-pounder. It's like, man, we can catch you a 10-pounder. And then and then we can start chasing teeners, right, what we call teeners. And then, uh, you know, anything in the 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, 19-pound yeah. range. I think that's important. once we get into the 20-pound world, then we really start honing in on 
producing fish that uh, at least producing the family line that could produce the next world record absolutely i think the important part of what y'all are doing is like yes you are trying to grow the next world record that's that's part of it but like really the goal seems to be to like improve fisheries around the country absolutely so the top end holy grail like this is our number one top goal it'd be amazing if we achieve this is the next world record you know 22 plus but we have like 20 other goals that really just evolve around helping improve fisheries from the standpoint of you know genetics that focus on fast growing fish genetics that focus on um catchability you know one of the biggest things that you see in the industry is man i've got this lake and we really did it right and we have all these giant fish that we shock up with a shock boat but we never catch them and so like how disaster would it be if we you know if people had these teeners or the next world record and they couldn't catch it so catchability um uh, just we look at a lot of true trophy genetics instead of having these outliers in a lake. It's like let's make sure we're pumping out a given body of water for full of true trophy markers. And so yeah, we have we have about a dozen goals um, or a dozen things we're chasing, and then we have some subcategories that we will kind of chase and generation two generation three of our approach but yes it's ultimately i mean if you if if you see anything about what we do i mean we had this little tagline call that that, that that's breaking bass barriers because if you if you kind of look at the bass industry and you look at what we've done we've done a lot of great things but we have these barriers that we've kind of pushed and like how do we get past them and that's what we're trying to do is break those barriers of, man, we, we can grow six, seven, eight, nine pounders pretty easy across the board, any pond manager, any fishery. But what's keeping us from getting to those double digits? What's keeping us from, you know, a world, quote unquote, world record? Uh, or let, 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 let's not even talk about world records. Let's, let's just say a, a teener or a 20 plus pounder not seeing those more often. I mean, if you think about it, even like you go out to Texas, I mean, a lot of great fish being caught in Texas, but there's still just 13, 14, 15 pounders. Why yeah. is there not more 17, Thanks. 18, 19, 20 mm-hmm. pounders? Why do, why is it several decades <clears throat> before you see a 20 pound fish? Yeah. And that's what we're trying to help improve. Something, so, something that you said when we were fishing with you that kind of struck me, which I did not realize until you brought it up was the old photographs of people with stringers full of double digit bass back from yes. the 19 I guess the what early 1900s Yeah I mean yeah obviously the early 1900s I, I don't know really where you start kind of seeing that dip off but yeah. if you look at old pictures of of bass fishermen yeah I mean their stringer is not like ooh look we caught like you know 23 pounders it's like no we, we we caught 15 pounders. Yeah. It was amazing. It yeah. was absolutely amazing back in the day. So you think just over time of fishermen taking out the biggest fish for for meat purposes, it affects the genetics of a a large impoundment, impoundment enough to where you just don't see those fish anymore? Yeah, I mean, look, I want to preface, like, I'm not a biologist. Mm-hmm. Um, we have biologists on our team, but but I'm a fisherman. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a passionate fisherman. I love bass. 
I love that I get to do what I do because I mean, you guys saw it at the hatchery. I mean, I'm I'm like a little kid when it, even when it comes to feeding the the brood stock or feeding the bass with goldfish. I mean, I love it. I mean, I get giddy about it. But yeah, I mean, if you back up a hundred years ago, if you back up fifty years ago, we were. I mean, most most people were really more. I mean, they were catching fish, they were keeping them, they were cleaning them, they were eating them. Mm-hmm. And and over the last 30 years, 40 years, we really have been kind of this catch and release, conservation-minded um, approach, which is which is not a bad thing. But the reality is, is and again, not not to overcomplicate it, but to keep it very surf- surface level, is, man, back in the day, we were catching big fish, we were catching the most aggressive fish, right? you know, and we were keeping them right right? and so there's there's a genetic profile that's getting pulled out constantly getting pulled out over decades right i guess similar to shooting you know your biggest 200 inch deer off your farm every year and letting all the little six pointers mature six pointers and mature just inferior deer walk i think eventually you'd see less you know 200 inch deer being produced is that i guess a similar comparison both from both from a genetic standpoint and from a from a harvest standpoint i mean the other element of is we've we're very catch and release minded when it comes to largemouth bass which i'm not saying it's right or wrong i'm just saying that's where we're at in the last three decades Mm -hmm. uh, four decades and you know you, you can have the greatest genetic potential in the world but if you know if you're trying to feed a, a hundred kids versus feed ten kids, and you only have so many resources in any given body of water, then those those hundred kids are only going to get so big versus if you were just feeding ten. So there's there's a harvest approach, you know, thought process, but then there's this genetic process, and that's really where we hone in on. I mean, that's our focus is how can we pump as much genetics back into fisheries across the board, whatever that looks like, private, private ponds, like you guys experienced, uh, you know, state, state lakes where it's open to the public. Well, and you, everything you look at, in between, you look at what happened at, at Chickamauga, to the lakes? look at what happened to Lake Chickamauga. There was, you know, Chickamauga was always a decent lake. All the, the Tennessee river lakes are, but, when they started introducing those, uh, I guess they were put. Were they putting F ones in there, Florida strain bass? Yeah. So, so let's be very clear here because this. I even saw a big article today, and I was like, "Man, we 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 use the F one terminology wrong." So, F one is really just in any kind of any kind of genealogy or any kind of generation of F one just represents the first generation, but we generically. We generically, as a fishing industry, communicate the F1, first-generation hybrid bass, as an F1, which really, an F1 Florida is is first-generation Florida. So let's make sure we're communicating clearly that, yes, Chickamauga started to introduce uh, F1 hybrids, which the F1 hybrid is it's pretty cool fish, you know, especially in its first generation, second generation, third generation. But you're right. I mean, if we're just going to be very clear about it, I'm looking at this as, as just 
very simple terms. I mean, they they made an effort to stock these g- better genetic fish, uh, the F1s or Florida strain bass, and look at what that fishery turned into. I mean, it was a it was pumping out huge bags. It was a mud hole. <laughs> yeah. And now it's it's a it's a it's one of it's the best cool big bass lakes it's producing in the world. a lot of big fish. Yeah. And so that's that's the thing that like I like that y'all are doing is like I'm totally on board to improve fisheries. Totally on board for that. I do think that you'll get a little bit of feedback of like, oh, you know, and that's why I wanted to be clear about the genetic stuff is that you're not genetically enhancing these fish. You're not altering their genetics. Uh, you're breeding the best you can find to improve fisheries yeah. and I just know there's yeah. going to be people out there that are like, I don't support growing the next world record. Like that's not, uh, you know, that's not right. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be some people that say that, but, uh, yeah, but you know, the one thing we, yeah, we want to make cl- clear is, is there's no genetic modification going on. And the reality is, is genetics us picking and 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 breeding all the best genetics is is only one of about three or four elements that's going to grow the next world record because i can have the best genetics in the world i use this i use this analogy all the time is is i can have the best genetics in the world but one if my genetics aren't living in an environment that they can thrive in so so in the fish industry water quality um you know you look at the deer industry if it's not if they're not living in land where they have quality um habitat and cover and vegetation and food you know they're never going to reach there and even in basses is the genetics is one element of the diet you know what do they have to eat do they have plenty to eat do they have high producing you know forage base do they have great water quality do they have cover is a fish chasing bait all over the world all day long burning calories to try to eat or do they have great cover where they can ambush forage and so there's so many variables to actually grow great fish but we're but there's so many pond management companies in the world and there's so many state agencies in the, in, in the country that are doing a great job at that, at all those water quality, habitat, forage, all those things. We're just trying to add a, a superior genetic profile. And again, it's a profile. And again, it's pedigree breeding, which if you simplify pedigree breeding, just like in the dog industry, the horse industry, the cattle industry, the deer industry – we're just spawning families, males and females, that their offspring tend to produce well. They perform well. And then you continue to hone that in that if, man, if I, if I pair this female with this male, then they tend to – their offspring tend to do this. And that's just mm-hmm. a tool, right? So this offspring tends to grow really fast. And this offspring tends to be very catchable, very – it's called the vulnerability gene in genetics. They're very catchable. Well, this offspring has a lot of trophy markers. Well, if we we have all those tools for any given fishery, because there's some fisheries that's like, you know what? We don't want to grow the next world, world record. We just want to catch some better fish. We want to catch more fish. So we want to pump in the vulnerability gene or the catchability gene or – you know, our fish are just growing really slow. Well, let's, let's pump in some fast-growing fish. 
but the again the holy grail is is what if we pair all those things together and we have this bass this largemouth bass which is it's going to be a florida strain that grows fast that is catchable that has all the trophy genes that's so it's going to grow big and ultimately it's going to be a female as we all as if anybody you know any of your listeners know that live in the fishing industry know that the female fish like so many other animals the female is always the bigger animal um the female is going to be the next world record the female is going to be the double digit fish it's going to be the teener so introducing female population more a higher female population a fast fast growing female a very aggressive female and you look up and you've approved fisheries and maybe after a period of time and some effort and some adjustments you you, you maybe we do maybe we do look up and say well there's there's a world record yeah yeah Steve, one of the, the main questions I had coming down to the facility was how big can you grow bass inside the hatchery itself? And then at what point do you take them out? And mm-hmm. what what environmental factors may allow the fish to grow bigger than it could potentially grow inside one of those tanks? But I guess as yeah. you answer that question, maybe give like a just kind of a 30,000-foot view of the process that you guys have inside the hatchery kind of starting out at, as just a brood and then the process of moving them to different tanks. And then you end up with your, your breeder stock and then some go to the pond. Absolutely. Great question, Drew. And here is, it's the, the one thing we address the most and here's the cool part. It throws people off, but it's just the reality of what we're doing. So what people need to realize is, is, if we've identified this fish that has the dynamite DNA, like this is a awesome genetically enhanced fish. It's like, you know, like you say, the Shaquille O'Neal or the, you know, the, the next greatest, whatever. He I mean, he's got everything. That fish has that DNA profile. He has everything when he was, when he's a one pounder, just like when he's a 10 pounder, a 15 pounder, a 20 pounder DNA's DNA so so the first thing is is in our hatchery we don't have to have all these big huge fish we have some big ones you, you guys saw them we, we got some we got some, some got nice some females swimming around that are pr- pretty large but we don't have to have a room full or hatchery full of big females because we're spawning them based off their dna profile which again the dna profile is the same when they're one pound then when they're 10 pounds, it's the same DNA, right? Which is really good from a hatchery standpoint because we don't, you know, keeping a 10 pound fish, keeping a 15 pound fish alive, it's a lot of resources. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of, it's a lot of forage. It's, it's, and then two, just like in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in human world of females, I mean, when a 10, 15 pounder is, they're not they're not producing the egg quality that a that a younger five pounder is right Mm -hmm. so we actually don't even want a huge you know a huge hatchery full of 10 20 pounders because they're actually they're not going to be producing the eggs that we want them to produce as five pounders so that we can then distribute those eggs distribute that dna into the wild but in our hatchery, we do control things. So, uh, and as you guys saw, I mean, 
one of the variables that we may we have is owner hatchery is an indoor hatchery, and so water temperature is controlled. Everything's controlled because we have to have it controlled so that it can be a scientific approach because without control there's no science and with that control we control water quality we control water temperature we control everything we feed them and naturally a fish is going to grow its fastest its best its biggest in a in a natural environment where it's warm water water temperature goes up it has you know ample amount of forage and we don't create that system in our hatchery because again we're studying dna we're studying these profiles Mm -hmm. so the biggest misconception about our hatchery is this you know when people come and visit us they're like man there's there's gonna be like 20 pounders swimming around everywhere and that's not the case but we we like younger fish with great dna profiles and and we you know, we have a laboratory. So our hatchery is in South Georgia, like you guys experienced that. But we have a we have a genetics company that's out in California that does all of our DNA profiling. So they're reading this the DNA of all these fish. Um, and so <clears throat> we well, just, also the, we the further along the lines you get down the pedigrees, you're going to be improving your your genetics at every generation, every generation. So. <laughs> I'm sure you're wanting yeah, to breed those those newer batches. Those that's newer the cool batches, thing, absolutely. Is is I tell people all the time is for the foreseeable future because we every year and even because we we developed a indoor facility we, we actually spawn twice a year. We kind of speed up the pedigree because we can kind of change the lighting and the water temperature. But but every year the pedigree is actually better because we know more about the performance of the offspring. Again, our focus is. How do the kids react? How do the kids perform? Not so when the parents, the the male and female, produce an offspring. What does that offspring do? And if that offspring performs well, we're like, ooh, those two parents are great. If the offspring doesn't really perform well, we're like, ooh, probably not going to spawn those two parents again. Um, and so, so absolutely, we we get to accelerate things. We get to see who needs to be spawning. And we get to try to speed up the process so that, again, our goal is we want to speed the process up because we want we want to get these fish out into people's lakes, into rivers and lakes, and really try to help the fisheries. So when you're, when you're spawning these different genetics, uh, this is kind of two questions. First question is, is it like a linear progression as far as each generation being better than the next? Or... Is it more of a diminishing curve? And is there ever a point where you hit like the holy grail of genetic family where you're just like, all right, this is it. We're just going to you know, keep these genetics and breed these for as long as we possibly can. Yeah, that's uh, so in my little simplistic mind as a you know sales and marketing guy, I'm like, man, let's find like the 10 fish that we need to spawn every yeah. year and just bust out these amazing fish. But from from genetics and pedigree breeding, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. And it, it, I mean, it does work that way, but for long term sustainability, it doesn't because we want to remain we want to keep intact this genetic diversity. Right. So we don't want to produce these same ten fish or these same five families over and over and over again, because that's that's that that doesn't that doesn't work long term. It only mm-hmm. works short term. You want genetic diversity in any given fisheries, and so obviously it's new. We're 
we're neck deep in it. And is it diminishing returns? I don't know that that will ever happen. I hope not, but I don't see diminishing returns happening anytime in the near future because we learn so much about every spawn we have. And we're still collecting fish from all over the country, even, even, you know, not so much all over the world because a lot, a lot of what people don't realize is all the largemouth bass that are all over the world, they ultimately came from the United States anyways, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we're still collecting a lot of DNA profiles from all over the country, seeing what we can discover, seeing how fish respond and seeing how this male and this female, what they produce. And, and so I just don't see there being any kind of diminishing return anytime soon, which is really exciting because at the end of the day, it's all anecdotal, but we're seeing some pretty awesome results from our customers. People who have bought our fish, stocked them six months later, they're like, man, look what we're seeing. And, you know, you guys got to experience it firsthand. And I, I think we're just scratching the surface of the discovery of some really cool pedigree lines or family yeah. lines, bloodlines that we could produce some pretty awesome fish with. So, Steve, I have a question. Um, I'm not going to ask you if you think that you will produce the next world record because I already know that your answer to that. <laughs> My question is, when do you think it will be? Oh, that's um, that's a really tough question, Lee. Because it would be um, because what we don't know yet is no. So people ask all the time, well, how much weight are you going to put on fish every year? And we don't know that yet. I mean, we're, and I'm not, I'm not going to share some of the data that I've seen on this podcast because it's, we try to really stay in the scientific element and in the scientific element, there's lots of, you know, controls and then validation and then you repeat validation to then say it's real, right? Which fogs my brain up you know i'm a guy's like let's let's talk about what we're actually seeing that fish was six inches six months ago and now it's three pounds like this amazing but i think only time will tell how fast so you know we, we have four approaches right we have fast growing fish um we have vulnerability or catchable fish if we're going to help people grow really big awesome teeners we want them to be able to catch them because the reality is is a traditional florida pure florida largemouth which is going to be your teener they're very female, tough to catch which is going to be your teener they're moody man they don't they're hard to catch so we want them catchable um we want to improve we want to to increase the number of females that are in any given fishery or at least the fishery that is a trophy fishery. So we want them to be catchable. We want them to be fast growing. We want them to have all the trophy markers so that we don't have any outliers, right? Like, Oh yeah, we're growing. We got these 10 really good fish, but we also have these 10 fish that are just kind of womp, womp, womp. And they're, you know, they're spawning with other fish and they're spreading their subpar genetics. We want to eliminate that. And then we want, we're actually really close to introducing a, you know, uh, being able to identify female fish with a DNA test, which has never been done before. We're in final validation of that, which that will be very exciting. And it'd be one of our four approaches to say fast growing fish, um, catchable fish, 
trophy markers and being able to ha- being able to identify females sooner so that we can put more females in the lake. So a long answer to a short question is what we don't know yet because it's just too new is is how fast will we get there? How how fast will we get there? And I don't know, but what I do know, what I do believe in is again I, I shared it a little bit earlier is my first goal as a fisherman, right? As a fisherman is how can how can we help more people expect that they will catch a double digit fish a 10 pounder in their lifetime you know lee even though we talked a lot of smack the other day you had an opportunity <laughs> to do that so yeah you'll talk a lot of crap like wh- why you do not pretty all thick. three of us catch 10 pounders which we're going to get there very soon where all three of us would have caught 10 pounders that day and then man we start seeing more teeners more of these 15 16 17 18 pounders in the world and then ultimately the progression of the world record was broke hey you know 24 months later it was actually broke twice you know and so i just don't know we just don't know yet on on how fast we will get there you did a very good job explaining that uh you still dodged it though (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean what's your prediction (laughs) i'm gonna force it out of you What's your I'm best a, I'm guess? I'm a marketing guy, like ultimate optimism, like let's go get it, let's go. Wait, we can. That's what I want to hear. Flip the world upside down. Yep. But I, I do have partners that are scientists. That are <laughs> Josh like, is going to come after you. Hey, man, you <laughs> I know. I know. You, you can't say that. I'm like, <laughs> I know Josh is going to rip you. If well, you're so like, the the lake that, years. the lake that we fished, those fish had been in there for four years, correct? Yes. And um, Lee, that lake is was built four years ago. Okay, and Lee caught a ten three. But what's the biggest fish you've shot out of that lake? So we so th- that lake is a little bit modified with it's got all these Titan bass, right? So the whole approach is the, you know the Titan bass. That's our trademark to pedigree breeding of largemouth bass. Um, you know we've we the lake was was obviously built before the red hills fishery and the titan bass started so there was there was some other feet so that lake as you guys talked about that lake is all females and so there was some females put in there that based off what we saw were very good high performing lakes but we shocked a 12 pounder out of it about just just under two years ago so we think that fish is push that that fish should be in the teens which is what a lot of people don't realize is shocking fish is actually very challenging and sock shocking big fish is very challenging um but it, you know we we think there's a 15 in there and it's four years old that's crazy. and and but again like i don't want to focus on that i don't want to focus you on know steve i actually had I that want, fish I want on there to be, i want there to be 10 15 steve that. i had that fish saying. on <laughs> I don't know that one, that. that one I lost. It's about it's about to come out in our YouTube video. The one I lost, guaranteed, it was that fifteen pounder. That was Bertha. That was her. <laughs> I mean, that was all I Aunt saw Mama. it too. I mean, I, I, look, look, we talked smack all day, and you know, we the, the day changed drastically. You know, me and Drew were really you know catching them pretty decent and decent for a trophy fishery. Now, as everyone knows, if they saw the the first video we posted, it's a different approach. The first lake we chased was it's a 50, 60 fish day. You know, we're, we're trying to chase 30, 25 to 30 pounds. I think we ended up at about 22. We never had that real big bite. 
this fishery is different. We, I think, if I if I remember correctly, we we caught about sixteen, seventeen fish that day. Mm-hmm. But we're chasing those really big ones, and and me and Drew, you know, we you know we were kind of controlling the boat. Yeah, we got dialed in quick. Steve. You just you just kind of you know y'all were smoking, catching me. and 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 losing these giants. But I saw it. I would agree with you, even though I don't want to, Lee. I would agree with you that the fish we lost in that video. I think it was, was bigger. Was pretty big. <laughs> I think it, it was, was bigger big. than the ten three that I that we did catch. It, it was so wide. It, it, it was, and 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 you guys will see this in the video. They, these fish were just. I mean, they're they're very healthy, but so that fish. Fat. I mean, it was manhandling you, Lee. I mean, it was really taking you to hit the town. weight room there, Roy. But <laughs> when I saw it flash, when I saw it turn, when it when it kind of spit the bait, I was like, oh, my God, that was a giant. That was an absolute giant. <laughs> the, when I first saw the fish, and it didn't jump, so like, but like when I got my it first glimpse jump. of it, the first thing that went through my head was, this is bigger than the other one. And then he got to the boat and, and rolled and flashed, and I, you know, the jig came out of his mouth, but... Yeah, um, it, it was no doubt the fish we were chasing. No doubt. You blew no it. doubt. I mean, it was a double-digit fish for I sure. I blew it. <laughs> uh, Steve, from a fisherman standpoint, how does a female-only pond fish differently than your normal fishery? Because <laughs> we were fishing yeah. uh, what mid-March, South Georgia. They should be peak of the spawn that time of year. Obviously, they don't spawn – but they do go up shallow looking to spawn. Mm-hmm. Does does that just throw off all of your typical uh, patterns and presentations? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I shared it with you guys leading into it. I mean, I'm still a little, I'm still learning the approach on that all female lake, and yeah. and and the all female lake has become quite popular across the country. Um, but what I, you know, I even shared with you guys leading into is like what I didn't know is. So the reality is big fish, big fish, double digit fish. They don't they don't really like to go up shallow to spawn. They, they they will spawn as deep as water as possible. But as you guys saw, this this lake was it's very healthy from a nutrition standpoint. So it's got it, it, it's not a clear lake. It's got some color to it. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know was where are these big big females going to be up shallow looking for someone to spawn when look, looking for, you know, a male fish or were they going to hang tight out deep in some of the, the deeper structure. But, you know, and again, you guys will see it soon, um, dropping any day now. Um, but I think the big, the big females d- did creep up there. Um, looking, they were at least looking, mm-hmm. you know, nature, nature was warning to, do this thing and, and again to address that is i mean the reality is is if, if you want to truly there's two approaches where we have these private fisheries where a guy has a hundred acre lake 80 acre lake 50 acre lake 30 acre lake and he really wants to catch a bunch of big fish well there's only so many resources there's only so much money to be spent there's only so much forage and and the approach is is well you know don't don't deal with the whole reproduction and trying to harvest don't deal with all your little males your buck fish eating up all your bait just let the fish that are truly going to be trophies 
take in all the resources, right? That's never going to work in like a big fishery, but some of these fisheries like what we were on, it it, it will. And so we're learning how those fish are behaving. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we caught some fish that were a little bit out deeper, but the uh, probably our top five, you know, the the fish that ended up in our top five with our approach of chasing that five fish that weigh 50 pounds which we will do in that lake i guarantee you mm-hmm. we will oh, do it'll, it. it'll happen there's uh, no doubt they they were kind of more off shallow that day so that tells me that they being in march and it was it was warm we've had a little bit of a warm front i don't think they were really trying to spawn but they definitely were more in, in the shallow water I, I think looking looking for an opportunity to do so yeah it seemed like the big big fish including least 10 pounder they were in they're right in the transition zone of shallow water with deep water access. When we started working yeah. back into those spawning pockets, I think I did catch a seven back in one of them in one of the deeper spawning pockets, but most yeah. of, it seemed like most of the fish we caught back there were a little bit smaller. And then the, yeah, I think I think the f- four of the five biggest fish, which were, were two sevens and eight plus and a ten plus. The, those four were in the sh- it, it definitely in more shallow, and then you did catch one. And then look, don't forget, you lost a good one that I did, yeah. Was and that one was I shallow, still pretty shallow. Yeah. So, so I guess it tells you. I mean, again, a long, long answer. We're going around the mountain to get to answer question. Is is I didn't know going in, but coming out of it is I think those fish naturally moved up to shallower water in the spring mm-hmm. and which really threw me off I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be honest because what i know about big fish is is even in, in, big fish big fish they will try to spawn in as deep as water as possible they don't like being up they don't like being up there right um now people now especially in florida and texas people catch a lot of big fish I mean, Dottie. Yeah, I don't know if you guys remember Dottie out in California. Oh, but Dottie was caught the documentary. Times, Dottie was probably supposed to be the next world record. Just wasn't caught the right way. Got snagged on on accident. But Dottie came up and spawned in very shallow water. Dottie was a Dottie was a 20, 24, 25 pounder. You know, um, just didn't count. Right. So there's there's these variables that most big fish like to stay out deep and they'll spawn as deep as water as possible but there are big fish that will come up shallow and that's ultimately i think what we experienced that day yeah yeah i would agree well steve uh i appreciate you calling in and taking some time out of your vacation to Give us some wisdom. That's actually your last name too. That's kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I loved it, man. Thanks. Thanks for letting us. And thank come you, on and man. Thank you through. for helping us get the invite out there. That was a a really special deal. Um, and if for anybody's listening to this, if the, if they're interested in uh, getting some of the bass that Steve and those guys are are making, it, their website is titanbass.com, and they pretty much just ship them to your door. So. Yeah, we can ship them to your door. Well, we we like to work through pond managers because, again, like we talked about, you know, there, there's a there's a there's a program in place. We need forage, we need water quality and cover. But some situations we do, we will, you know, ship direct direct. We'll overnight it, which um, some people do. But um, but yeah, just I'll help you get to the right place. Let's put it that way. Go just go check us out at titan titanbass.com and. 
um, you know, shoot us an email and we'll help you get, get in the right place. And if you guys want some Titan bass in your lake, we will definitely help you get it there. Steve, all I'm asking is for another invite to that place in about four or five years. <laughs> well, hopefully not in four or five years. Like, I mean, is this the I, man, I love to you question? guys, I love what you do. Uh, uh, and I would love for, for your viewership to just kind of experience the journey. I mean, if anybody obviously has seen the first video and the you know, second video is about to drop, I mean, you guys are going to, you know, bring out some of your, your subscribers to, you know, come experience what you got to experience. And I would love for people to experience the journey. Yeah. But, yeah, four or five years from now, uh, let's just say four years from now, it could be really ugly. But. Well, here, here, let me, let I me. Bet, I bet we, I bet we break the 50, 50 pound mark next year. Let I me rephrase my question. When you guys have a world record bass out there, I would love an invite back, and that will be in how many years should I expect that invite? Just yeah, so I can plan start, ahead? When we start shocking up teeners, uh, well, let's make sure we get you guys down there. Dodge it again. It. <laughs> he's he's well-versed. Yeah, he's practiced this. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thank you, man. We'll let you go. Absolutely. Thanks, have a good guys. Rest of your have vacation. a good night. I appreciate you letting me jump on here, and um, – let me know if I can do anything for you, cool. okay? All yep. right. Thank you. See ya. All right. See you. So how many years do you think it's going to be? That's what I wanted to ask you. So here's here's my question to you. First off, do you think they'll do it? And if you had to guess when they would do it, when do you think it would be? So first question, <sighs> do you think they'll do it? I mean, I'm just kind of like I do not have enough knowledge about genetics fish genetics oh and i don't either but just purely out of intuition if and we talked about this a bunch down there but if they do grow the world record i don't think they're just going to grow one like it's i don't think they're just going to get to the point where one fish just happens to get over that 22 22 five is that what it is it's yeah i think they'll grow a whole generation or not? A, I mean, you know, they'll have a a handful of world record class fish. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't know what it takes genetically and nutritionally to get a fish over that eighteen pound mark. Because you almost never hear a fish, at least coming from like public lakes, going over the seventeen, eighteen pound mark. So is your answer yes? If anyone's going to do it, they're going to do it. So is your answer... I'm, yeah, I'll go yes. Okay, thank you. That's all I'm pushing for. <laughs> I'll go yes. And how long is it going to be? Oh, man. I mean, I think a safe bet would be 10 years. Because if you think about it, like, they just they started this operation three year, three or four years ago. So the fish that are in the lake now... The, that's the first batch of genetic fish that they, they had. So even if they get to the right genetics in three years from now, it's going to take five, six years for that fish to, to get that big. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, I would say ten is probably the the shortest okay. amount of that's, time. I feel like that's a uh, for our very unqualified opinion. I feel like that's a very educated, unqualified opinion. <laughs> Thank you. I did um, not think about it at all before you hopped on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to play devil's advocate. Okay. And I'm going to say, I think it's going to be more of a challenge than anybody 
could really – I think it's way more of a challenge than anybody could prepare for. Um, I, there has been people that have been trying to grow a world record bass. I've, I read articles about a guy in Texas that was feeding them freshwater prawns. These like lobster size, basically lobster size shrimp or shrimp or crawfish or yeah, crawfish like lobster size crawfish. They're huge, and you know he was unsuccessful. I've I've heard of just multiple stories where people have tried. I mean, there has been a lot of people that have tried. But with the Texas deal, they were not focusing on the genetics. genetics. Correct. Which to me seems like the most obvious thing coming from like the deer hunting world. I don't care how much protein you pump into a, a deer that doesn't have good genetics. It's never going to get big. I would I would agree. And 100% I would, agree. Same, I mean, same with people, same with any, any living yep. thing. So I think that what they are doing is the correct path to do it. But I just... I still think that Mother Nature is a very fickle thing. And I don't know. Um, I love what I, I love Steve. Uh, I definitely support what they're doing to, to improve fisheries. Um, the exciting thing is the let's grow a world record thing. Will they do it? There's so much collateral that comes from attempting to grow the world record that benefits public fisheries and for private sure. ponds and for sure. So yeah. Much it's, else, it's, and that's, that's for me, what I like about it is that it's not a selfish thing that it's like this guy that just wants to grow a world record and go catch it for himself and then claim the world record. It's, they are making these fish available to everybody for local ponds, wherever they want to go, big lakes, big fisheries, if they want to work with TWRA, like all these different, you know, it's to improve fisheries. If it was a different scenario where it's like they're trying to grow one world record to break to break the record because this guy wanted to. Have a trophy. Yeah, I, I think that would be wrong. Uh, but I don't. I think that what they're doing is, is really cool. Um, you know, I'm just playing a little devil's advocate, like, I could totally see him doing it. I just think it's going to be a really big challenge to grow a world record bass and catch it. Yeah, catching it's a whole other story. Yeah. So time will tell. I mean, this this is probably going to be something that we continue to follow up on. You know, maybe maybe once once every fishing season rolls around and just kind of like see how these fish are progressing. What? If one of us catches it. <laughs> that would be nuts. <laughs> what would you do if you caught the world record bass? I don't know. Like, how would you capitalize on that? I, well, speaking of... That fish would be worth millions of dollars. Yeah, speaking of, you should have the junior world record had you used a certified scale to weigh this fish. Correct. Which is your greatest Probably out, my greatest. outdoor accompli- I would agree. accomplishment at... How, 14 years old? I think I was 14, yeah. Um, I think, I've always heard rumors that Bass Pro Shops would is like willing to fly a helicopter to wherever you are with like a live tank. Because, dude. They better you, give me a helicopter if I catch a world record. Could you imagine if Bass Pro Shops had the standing world record in one of their tanks? Yeah, that, it would How be many crazy. people would come to see it? They could easily spend a couple million dollars. I've heard the I've heard the the price tag is like a million dollars or something that Bass Pros 
offer like has is willing mm-hmm. to pay if it's ever caught. Dude, they would make so much money. People coming to see that fish. In the I feel tank. like it, I feel like that's negotiable. Definitely, especially negotiable. when you, when you have a, if you can keep it alive too. Yeah, that would be insane if we did go back there in four or five years, and they're like, guys, we've shot some fish that are close. Imagine the security they're gonna have to put on this place. If when they, it gets if to that they, place. If they start shocking up 20-pounders, oh, like, they need to be tight-lipped about it. I, I can't imagine. 24-hour security around that place if there's a world record Dude, in it. I cannot imagine. <laughs> but one of the things that Steve talked about was, like, it's very likely that one of the their their customers grows the world, next world record. Yeah. I mean, what are the odds that the, that one lake down there where everything started grows it? Yeah. It's, if they're giving fish to thousands of customers a year, someone else could totally most pull likely it off. someone else is going to catch it. Yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. Um, I I think it's interesting stuff for sure. And I Drew and I both love bass fishing. We we grew up bass fishing. We fished competitively in college, so this was something that was very interesting for us to do. It was an awesome opportunity to go fish a place that's just phenomenal. Um. And hopefully bring a couple of you guys out there with us the next time we go. What I lo- what I liked about it was that it didn't fish like a normal pond. Yeah. It fished more like a a lake, yeah. like a public lake. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's way, way better than a public lake, but still you're not, you're working for bites. Like yeah. I mean, you, you have to fish slow. You have to be casting in the right spot. Like you're not just throwing a Cinco on the bank and catching a fish every cast. No. Yeah. I mean... It's 80 acres, and there's trees and so much cover everywhere. And we fished pretty much all day for 16 fish. Mm-hmm. Um, you really, I mean, dude, I went the whole first day, first half catch, of the day. Yeah, you didn't catch a fish I didn't until catch like one a o'clock. single fish. And then I think I ended up catching, you know, maybe four. Uh, so <clears throat> I literally thought I was going to fish the, one of the greatest lakes in the world and not catch a bass the whole time. <laughs> Oh, I would have loved that. I never would have lived it down, but <laughs> um, yeah, I I mean, I just think it's it's interesting stuff, and I'm I'm very curious to see kind of what unfolds mm-hmm. uh, with their kind of journey and process down there. So I'm excited to go back. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious what the bite's going to be in June. The first lake we fished, which was 300 acres and just chock full of grass, is going to be slammer on a frog frog bite's gonna be insane i'm excited to take a couple subscribers there and like dude it'd be the coolest thing ever if if one of them or two of them caught a a double digit fish yeah it'd be the coolest thing ever but i i don't know what this so typical bass that spawn like a female is the biggest it ever is during the year in pre-spawn then they drop all their eggs and they're skinny after spawn but since these fish don't spawn, they actually absorb their eggs. And so I wonder if they're basically the same size all year long. I don't know. If they ever get skinny. I don't know. I I'd be I'd be curious to I'd be curious to go catch them and see what yeah. they and compare to what they Only look like. Only one last way to time. find out. <laughs> We're coming back, Steve. Um moving on, uh we are going to um you got a you got a turkey hunt in Georgia. I'm headed up to Tennessee with Kendall. Um, we're 
we we got a, some fishing content behind us. I think we're about to bust wide open with turkey stuff. Um, we've got some quite a few trips kind of planned, and uh, dude, to be honest with you, I'm really really getting hooked on turkey hunting. Like last year was kind of the first year for me to actually like turkey hunt and i liked it i got excited about it but as soon as deer hunting or deer season came back i left my mind and then this year i was excited about fishing we fished this place and it was almost like it was almost like i okay i got my i got the fishing thing out of my way all i could think about was turkey hunting and mm-hmm. i've always been told from people that love turkey hunting it's like oh dude once you like once you get into it you can't stop it's just you get obsessed with it yeah and i feel like i'm starting to sort of fall in love with turkey hunting yeah i mean just being out there this time of year and just covering ground and being out there in the spring when weather's nice and you're walking around rather than sitting in a sitting tree stand tree all day stand. long. It's also like it, just a social thing too. Like it's fun to hunt with well, buddies. Social with buddies, but also interactive with the birds. Yep. Like it's, there's, there's just a lot. I mean, there's so much deer hunting and just like knowing the animal and patterns and things like that. But with turkey hunting, it's that plus the calling aspect of it. Well, it's, I feel like turkey hunting, you are constant. Every situation is different, and you're constantly being faced with like, you've got to make split second decisions, like right then and there, of what to do. Yeah, whereas deer hunting is more metho- methodical. Like right. you, you're planted ahead of time. Yeah, you're deciding. Okay, I'm gonna set the stand here and hunt here today and right. there tomorrow, whatever. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just faster paced. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm definitely getting into it. I feel like. Your calling you know, has improved a lot. Yeah, I've, <laughs> mine still sucks, but yours has gotten way better. <laughs> You're still better with just your mouth versus a diaphragm. Um, yeah, I think I I got a lot better last year, and then honestly didn't really practice much in the off season. I, I kind of picked it back up a couple weeks before the season, but just like being being forced to have to call, whereas like in years past, I've I've followed Jay around with the camera a lot, which has been super helpful. Like I've learned just from watching him and being there with him. Sure. As far as like tactics and stuff, ta- like calling, calling tactics, like what, how you call in certain situations. If you're going like trying to get a shot gobble versus if birds are close and you're just trying to be quiet, but also just like setups, um, picking the right cover, using this, the topography to, pull a bird all the way in it's been it was very helpful i guess like following him around and being attached to his hip but his style is also very different very aggressive yeah very different than a lot of people's but but having to do it yourself and like call yourself is still like it takes some getting used to and it takes getting some confidence especially when you have a camera on you like it's it's one thing if you're out in the woods by yourself and you call and you screw up and it's like yeah whatever yeah, but when you have someone filming you, it's like the oh, whole world. I gotta get this right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, it's I, been I, fun. I think the only way to really learn it is to do it yourself, and that's yeah. kind of why like we've made a point. You know, we got we got a bunch of buddies. Uh, 
you know, I'm going to Tennessee with a buddy, Derek, and he's a very experienced turkey hunter. But I'm like, dude, I want to do it myself. Like, I want to screw it up or I want yeah. to have the success by myself, like, where I'm learning what worked, what didn't work, uh, as opposed to kind of being handicapped a little bit by just kind of letting someone else, like, call you know, for you. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Part um, of it is exactly what you said like that's that's the fun part of hunting anything is going out and and making mistakes and learning from them and getting better but also like this is what we do for a living yeah we better figure it out yeah we better like (laughs) we need to be the ones that are that are calling the shots and hunting and not just like going with somebody that calls for for us and like says sit here i'm gonna call the bird in for you yeah um which is fine but like well, that's not what we're trying to accomplish. No, we, and we never really grew up with turkey opportunities around us where we kind of grew up. Yeah, um, and so that's why we've kind of gotten into it later in life. So we're definitely behind the curve. But like, dude, I I killed this bird in Alabama, stalking it. It wasn't it wasn't my calling that killed the bird. It was just like kind of the instinctive hunting. Uh, you know, these birds crest a hill. Okay, move up, move up. They're they're starting to come back. Stop. And Thomas and I stayed in this in thigh high water swamp for an hour and a half. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize you were birds. literally like wading in water when you shot the bird. Dude, also, how many freaking birds were in that group? A crap ton. <laughs> it was so like many. Twenty of them. It looked like. Yeah, dude. That's there were so many eyeballs, and like I was trying to keep trees a cluster of trees in between me and the birds at all times just keeping cover in front of me as i'm like slowly inching inch by inch by inch by inch creeping up on these birds and um that was just sort of hunter instinct uh that killed those birds like not necessarily great calling or anything like that it was just you know we have the skill set to do it we just really need to master the calling and like strategies around figuring out certain situations to, you know, go after turkeys. Um, but yeah, dude, it was that hunt in Alabama, probably one of my favorite hunts of all time. It's definitely my favorite Turkey hunt of all time, but Oh yeah. So we were in a buddy of ours put on like a, a a Turkey challenge type thing. And, the day that we got down there, at least the property that I was hunting, we heard five, probably four or five gobbles on the roost. And then, like, the next day, it got kind of windy, and I think we heard one gobble that next morning. Yep. Um, but, it, like, talking to all the people at this challenge, they said the exact same thing. Very, so it was, yeah. It was interesting kind of seeing, like, how the birds acted the same really all over the state because people were hunting all over the place. They weren't just in this one specific area. Yeah. Um, but to that point, you guys didn't, it sounded like you guys didn't really call much. And I think like there was, what I experienced was calling was not effective because these birds were just, the, they were gobbling in the tree. The hens were finding them fast. There's like no cover on the trees so that gobbler can see hens from a long way off. And as soon as they lock in on one, they pitch down to it, they're hinned up, and then they just, you know, court those hens to for pull the rest, them off the the rest of the morning. almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, the 
reason we didn't call to these birds was, well, our plan was to get on the same side of the field as them and get it, get as close as we could and see if we could call and just coax, coax them to us over time, whether some hens got curious or whatever. Um, but what happened was this pond was flooded. We thought there was a pond dam. The pond was totally flooded and it was just standing water in between us and the birds. It's like, we're not calling them across this. There's just, it's not happening. Um, and that was like, a, all right, well, we're going to risk it and take a gamble and go straight at them through this water. And we didn't call one time because I didn't want their attention to be towards us in any way, shape or form. I didn't want them, you know, directing their attention in our direction at all, at all. So we just, we put the calls up and it was literally just stock, but Alabama birds from the little experience that I have, have most definitely been the toughest birds uh, that I've hunted. And mm-hmm. it's because they seem to be, depending on obviously where you're at, they seem to be pretty call shy and they seem to be decoy shy as well. Um, I wonder why that is. Because, I, I mean, Georgia birds get pressured probably just as much as Alabama birds, I guess. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, we're not like that deep in the hunting world or the turkey, turkey hunting world. world. But I don't know why they would be significantly different. Cause the place that I'm going to this weekend for Georgia opener, you could show, <laughs> you could show a, a bird that's 500 yards away, like a tail feather and it would come sprinting you at show you. Show him a fan that dirt that he's coming running, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I don't know why it'd be so different even on like private property yeah. in Alabama. Yeah, I don't know. I know one thing's for sure is we still have a lot of learning to do. So mm-hmm. the only way to do it, learn it, is to do it. And even that one morning, that last Sunday morning, we sat and had all those hens going nuts around us on the roost. Yeah, I've never been able to sit there and listen to actual hens interacting like that, being that vocal for 20 minutes, 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah, that was wild. It's like I was just sitting there trying to soak up like, listening to these birds and and how they're talking to each other um i think that like absorbing that gives you confidence when you're calling to being like okay like i've heard him do this this is what they do as opposed to just being like well i know you're supposed to supposed to yelp and we've been told to do this we've been told to do that it's like no we've spent enough time turkey hunting now it's like we're having these experiences and hearing how these birds are actually interacting and then mimicking that does it make you want to have Hank back? Yeah, I miss Hank. <laughs> Hank's my uh, pet turkey that uh, animal control actually came after in my neighborhood because my neighbors were complaining, giving, sending noise complaints to the city. Who um, also took fat dumps on your countertop where you eat your dinner? Yeah, Hank was an inside bird. I let him out. He lived outside, but I let him inside all the time, and he would just kind of roam around the house, and he would crap everywhere. But I loved him too much, so it didn't bother me. <laughs> Gosh, um, I can't wait till you have kids, or I can't wait till you have kids. Dude, Hank gobbled every ten seconds, <laughs> literally every ten seconds. We'll just get Hank back and get a hen, and then we can really see how they interact. I don't know if that would help us or not, but I really need to get Hank back. I think that's, I think that needs to happen. Postpone all hunting trips, and save Hank. Hashtag save Hank. People Hashtag love Hank. Bring Hank back. It needs to happen. <laughs> All right, I think we need to wrap it up. We've been—I don't know how long we've been. How long have we been going for? 
hour 19. Yeah, we need to shut her down. Well, by the time this podcast is dropped, obviously the first, well, both fishing episodes will have been posted on YouTube. Definitely go check those out. And then probably that... Your turkey episode turkey from Alabama will have been posted. Um, Georgia's coming up. Tennessee's coming up. Where else are we going? Um... I think we may go out west. I know you mentioned Montana or something like that. I think that'd be cool to go do that. Yeah. Um, Jay and I went out to Wyoming or Wyoming. Montana last year. But I was looking at flights and flights have skyrocketed. Gosh dang Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, We've never well, gotten more political on our post, but we might need to. More a little a little Putin action probably too. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's to be uh, determined. That's definitely affecting um, our plans a bit because it's like travel is so expensive right now. That yeah, we were planning on going to hunt uh, muskox in Russia, so that might have to be postponed. Um, we were. <laughs> yeah, he didn't see the schedule. <laughs> I must have missed that. <laughs> um, so, anyways, I, yeah, I, I think uh, there's some options in Kentucky. The, the guy that uh, is picking up the limo has offered us to come hunt in Kentucky. Is he ever going to come get that thing? He's coming next Friday. Gosh, I bet your neighbors are i got to get the brakes fixed tomorrow morning. Please, please. He'll sign a release of liability. Right, have Hire a lawyer to write up a release <laughs> of liability. I don't want Seek One to go down because so, someone was driving the limo and the brakes didn't work. Yeah, they don't work and all that great sued. right now. So, I need to get those bad boys fixed. But he... Uh, yeah, he invited us to come turkey hunt with him in Kentucky, so we might maybe venture out to Kentucky. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Sounds good. All right. Um, last thought. Uh, I am I really want to write that Can I Hunt on Your Hunting Land song. Well, you're going to Nashville this weekend, so why don't you lay something on vinyl? Yeah. I'm going to build it out. I'll, I'll give an update on the next podcast. <laughs> Actually, all right, so the next podcast is uh, we're going on a Spartan Forge retreat next week. We're bringing our stuff. Andy May, who is very known for killing really big deer in rural areas, uh, he actually met me in Michigan, door knocked with me, and uh, got a little bit of the door knocking perspective. Uh, And so I'm curious to get his feedback on what his thoughts were from his traditional style versus this door knocking, more suburban, smaller track style. Um, and just like probably get into comparing the two and getting his opinions mm-hmm. and thoughts and stuff like that. I think it'd be a very good, uh, uh, outsider's perspective. Um, yeah. Into it. A little so. preseason perspective and then follow up if he kills one. Oh, he's already, he's already like, so you think I could door knock this place around here? Have you been over here? Have you been over here? Dude, he's all into it. Now. So <laughs> I think it'll be a, a, a interesting perspective on uh, yeah rural versus suburban. So. Final final thought before signing off. Make sure you guys go leave us a five-star review on Spotify because apparently, <laughs> apparently that's a thing. I really just want to max I really want to crank up the five-star reviews just so I can talk crap to Bo. That's literally all I want. I don't I, – the number – you know, it's great to have that support and show that you guys love it. But like, I, I literally only want to just rub it in Bo's face. That's all <laughs> just I want. Give us some some more ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> all right, shut her down. All right, see you guys.